Good morning, church family, friends who are maybe visiting. We are, it's, it's a joy to see you this morning, and it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord, to fellowship with one another, to praise the Lord through song, and to praise the Lord as we hear His Word, and as, as we walk into uh, what will be the last few sermons here in James. We've been in James for about six months now. Uh, with a little bit of a break. And so uh, we, we come now to the final chapter. Now, as we do that, let me just give a, uh, a little uh, forewarning. As we come to James chapter 5, we will come to what is by far the harshest, most stern rebuke that James gives in the whole, in the whole book. And it makes it a tough passage to walk through. It also makes it a tough passage to walk through because it deals with a subject uh, that nobody wants to deal with. It's going to deal with wealth and possession. And it's going to deal with it in a way that nobody wants to be told how to deal with it, which is a tough and, and piercing word about the misuse and abuse of wealth and possessions. And so, uh, typically, we do one of two things with passages like this. We either ignore them because we don't want to fit the stereotype of, uh-oh, pastor's preaching on money and, and we don't want some of the baggage or, or we don't. And what happens when we ignore them is we leave ourselves blind to what God actually does really expect, one. And two, we open the door for the other thing that typically happens. We take passages like this and we hijack them. And we rip them out of context, and we make them say things that they don't say. And so we get up and, and, and we go, oh, well, you know, consider your wealth. Be generous with your wealth. God will be 20-fold over you. And we preach a prosperity gospel that's not there in Scripture. Or we come at it and we go the other side of it. We, we take more of a, a socialist kind of gospel, and we say, well, if you have any kind of wealth, it's... So understand, this is a challenging passage, and it's made all the more challenging because of how polarizing our language has become in the world today. And so I just ask as we walk through this, one, if you go, Pastor, that sounds a little crazy, call me, email me, because there's nothing that we're going to look at today that's grounded in anything going on uh, in, in culture around two. And let me just be clear to remind all of us, this is why we walk through books of the Bible as far as the preaching verse by verse, because it forces us to have to deal with hard texts. It forces us to have to dive into passages where the end result may or may not be everybody feeling good. It forces us to walk through what, what I would love, if I'm being honest with you, I'd love to go ahead and skip today and jump to next week. But at the same time, having studied and prayed through this passage, God has a really clear and good word for us today. But we've got to allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to examine and, 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 and pierce our hearts. So in doing that and having given you that warning, it's time to dive in deep and fast into the deep. And I invite you, if you've got your Bible, James chapter 5, verse 1. James 5, verse 1. If you want to use one of our pew Bibles, feel free. The page numbers are on the screen. Here's what it says. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's probably not the passage you wake up every morning and read to get the warm fuzzies for your day. 
He says, come now, stand up, show up, step up to the line. You, and all he says is, you rich. Now, I just want you to notice that. And notice as we walk through the passage, all we know about who he's addressing is just simply, you rich. We're going to come back to that. It's important when we get to the application. But he just says, you rich. He says, you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries, the afflictions that are, that are coming. They're not, they not, might be coming. They're coming. Make no mistake. You, you who, are, who are marked and described by the world as, as wealthy now, you need to be weeping, howling. These are words that speak of an intensity of anguish and sorrow because there is misery coming to you. There is misery coming to you. And he, and he describes then wealth in, in a holistic way. Your riches have rotted or maybe better translated if you dig into kind of that word for riches, your crops have rotted. We know in, in the first century in society that was primary uh, agrarian, how would, how would you describe wealth? Well, how, how, was your, how was your wheat harvest? How was your corn harvest? How was your, and someone's going to go, well, pastor, they would not have had corn in first century Israel. Yes, I know that. It's just what popped into my mind at the moment. Um, your crops have rotted. Do you know how much, how valuable rotted crops are? They're not. You go to the store and you find rotted produce, you don't buy it. He says your garments, these, these uh, ornate and embroidered outer garments that were a sign of one's status and affluence, not unlike today. Certain Clothes, brands, apparel, we, 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 uh, we view as being greater or lesser. And he says, your clothes, they've, they're, they're moth-eaten. They've got holes. He says, your silver and gold, those things, those precious metals, which would find money when it says you rusted. It's interesting if you dig in because we know from a certain standpoint, gold and silver don't rust, but the, he's, he's giving an intentional irony, meaning those most valuable of metals, which the nations of the world rage over, they've already, they've already begun quoting. They're, they're already worthless. And, and, and it's interesting, those verbs, rotted, moth-eaten, rusted, all of them are in the Greek in what we call the perfect tense, which implies something. What it implies is you who possess these things now, you who are living large now, you who are marked by your crops, by your clothes, by your, by your precious metals, you who are marked by wealth now, your wealth has already started the process of becoming worthless. And it's gonna stand up on a time and it's gonna witness against you. It will literally, your wealth will testify against you. And then in a, in a truly violent statement, if you really process it, it is going to consume your flesh like fire. It's going to be as if your skin is melted off by the flame. Now, why the harsh judgment? Why the harsh judgment? Is the harsh judgment simply because there are some people who, whom James simply here refers to as the rich who possess some, some possessions? Well, we know the answer from the rest of Scripture is no. In fact, if we were to flip over, we'll do it in a little bit, but not now. If we were to flip over to 1 Timothy 6, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to instruct the rich 
not to place their hope in their wealth and, and not to live a life all about their pleasure, but, but to be generous in doing good works. Paul does not condemn the fact that there are some who are rich. Here's the reality in Scripture, church family. God does not condemn simple wealth, nor does He promise wealth to everyone. The reality is Scripture takes a fairly uh, objective approach. There are going to be some in this world who have a lot. There are going to be some in the world who don't have as much. There are some in this world who will have a lot because God chooses to allow them to have it. There will be some in this world who have a lot because they have walked in sin and wickedness in order to gain what they have. So the issue is not simply the riches. The issue, as we're going to see here, is how they got it and what they're doing with it. Look with me, verse 4, or at the end of verse 3. It says, It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on earth and you've led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. It says the issue is not simply that there are some who are qualified by society as rich. The issue is how they got it and what they're doing with it. And he gives four things. There's four, four sins here that are taking place. One, in the last days you have stored up your treasure. In the last days, quite literally, you have hoarded what your treasure is. Now understand, in the last days is a phrase in Scripture that refers specifically to the days following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are living in the last days. Well, that's crazy, pastor. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose. Well, yes, but we're in the last days. In terms of human history, from God's perspective, we are living in the period of time where the mystery of the gospel is fully known. That we who are born sinners and and broken and, and out of relationship with the one who made us, God, and cannot do anything to earn that relationship back and to correct the problem that God in the fullness of time sent his one and only unique son who is fully God and fully man, Jesus the Christ. And he went and he lived the life that we have failed to live in our rebellion. He went and he died the death we rightfully deserve, bearing our punishment, hell, on the cross. That he has risen from the grave and he freely offers the salvation of his grace to those who respond in faith. We are living in the last days, the fullness of the mystery of the gospel. It's been revealed. We know the message. Salvation is offered. We know the mission. And creation waits longingly for her king. And he says, in these last days, in these days where your action should be urgent and marked by the reality of what the time you're living in, instead you've lived a life where you've simply sought to gain and hoard your treasure. Ray, put another way, this is like uh, when I was growing up in high school, this is like the guys who all summer should have been running and training and lifting to get ready for two-a-days for football, but they suck down Slurpees and they eat their Reese's peanut butter cups and they don't do any of that. They just enjoy summer. They, they, they hoard up all of their excitement and they show up at two-a-days and you're wondering why they are just puking nonstop. 
Because in the last days, in the days where their training and their action, their life should have been marked by, by a discipline in light of what was coming, they just lived for their own hoarding of pleasure. He says, you're guilty of this. Not only this, but what are they hoarding? How'd they get what they're hoarding? Look what he says. Behold, the pay of the workers who mowed your field, those you own the fields, and, and those workers who worked the fields, you've withheld their pay. You've defrauded them. You've kept it back. There are people who, whom you hired, whom you promised to pay this wage, who have done the job, and then you looked at it and said, well, I'm gonna nickel and dime them. We're, we're gonna change some language. We're gonna use some legalese. I'm gonna keep their rightful wages for them, and I'm gonna store it up in my treasure house for myself. They're guilty of defrauding, right? And, it, and it's interesting what it says. It's not just that the laborers cried. It says literally the actual payment you have withheld, the payment cries out against you, as well as the workers who are suffering from not being paid their rightful dues. So that's two. Three, it says you have lived luxuriously on earth, a life of wanton pleasure. Quite literally, you have led a life of self-indulgence. That, that first word, it, it's characterized by an excess in action. It's the idea of just giving in to any bodily hunger. It speaks to extravagant comfort and, and highlights the softness of that comfort. Think of it this way. Back in their day, if you had no money, you slept on a rock for your pillow. If you had money, you slept on a nice, soft, comfortable bed and pillow. That, that's the imagery of that first word. And while that first word is not necessarily always negative in the Greek, it is negative based on the second word there. You have lived for a life of wanton pleasure. Literally, that word means to live a life that is beyond the bounds of propriety. It speaks to a breakdown of any kind of divine restraint on the pursuit of our pleasure and our own personal indulgence. The words offer a picture of a life that has no self-denial, but goes after whatever it feels like it wants, having treated people wrongfully to get the means to go after what it wants. And what does this mean? As they've lived this life for wanton pleasure, he uses this imagery, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He says, here in these last days where your life should, should be marked by something else, instead you are hoarding up that treasure that you've defrauded people out of and you are using it, you are spending it on whatever your pleasure is, whatever it is you want, whatever makes you feel good. You are living lives of rampant luxury. Meanwhile, all around, there's workers you've defrauded. There's, there's people that could be in use. And he gives this imagery. It is as if in these last days, as, as history is moving to a culmination where the king returns, where Jesus comes back and sets things right, you have lived in such a way like, like, a, like a farm animal that is too skinny to go to the slaughterhouse. And because it's too skinny, what the workers are going to do is they're going to come and they're going to put every tasty, fattening, and delicious food that cow could ever want, and that cow is going to gorge itself it's going to be quite literally in hog heaven, not realizing that with every calorie that cow consumes, it is for the, going to lead to the sole purpose of its destruction. 
for the slaughter. That's the imagery he uses. You've lived this life of want and pleasure. Well, here's the fourth thing. It says in all of this, like what frequently happens in society, there is often, with those who have wealth, there is a connection to some kind of social uh, power. And he says, you've condemned a word talking about you have taken someone to court and in a legal context, you have convicted them. The idea here is wrongly. And not only that, but you've put them to death. You have murdered them. It's a word that means premeditated murder, to kill intentionally with premeditation. Now, it's possible. It means quite literally, quite literal murder. It's also possible it's, it's referring to, and this is, Uh, I'm I'm summarizing other passages of Scripture, that is, you are defrauding and keeping the rightful wages of a worker, what that means is they're not able to go home and buy the food they need, which that means then they and their family starve, which can lead to their death. So whether it's literal, they have literally sentenced people to wrongful death, or whether it's more indirect, you find a fourfold a fourfold sin of wickedness that is the reason for James's condemnation. We've, we've talked about this. Remember who he's writing to. He is writing to believers, most of whom are likely some of the early Jewish Christians who, who came to faith in Christ there in those early days we read about in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, a persecution breaks out across Jerusalem and those families are forced to scatter for their lives. These are families now living in new places, rebuilding livelihoods. Who knows what they had time to take with them or not? Who knows what other uh, connections they might have had within family or business? We know that they are struggling. We've talked all throughout. There's been this aspect of of joy and trial, of endurance, of suffering. And now we find out the root cause of their suffering. They are living in a place where these unspecified rich, these individuals who who possess the wealth in their land, what, what is taking place is these believers are going into jobs. They are rightfully working what they were told to work. They're doing their jobs. The implication is with excellence, but they're being denied their rightful pay by those who already have much, who are then taking what's rightfully their pay, and these wealthy are living for their own pleasure, and these believers have no recourse in what to do with it, because these same wealthy run the courts of their town. And what James does here, as these believers face a a real world of injustice and hardship and suffering, what James does is he makes sure they understand, understand those, those who are against you, their judgment's coming, And I'm calling them to step up to the plate and already to start grieving it. Why is their judgment coming? Well, we we jumped over a part. Look back in verse 4 with me. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The cries of those… It may seem like in this world those cries have gone unheeded. It may seem like there's no one to step in the gap. It may seem like, but your cries, oh, they've made it somewhere. They've not just made it to anybody, but to the Lord of hosts. 
which is one of the major names used for God in the Old Testament. It speaks of God who is the Lord over the angelic armies, the one who is unconquerable, the one before whom no one can stand, the one who will come, as we see in Revelation, riding on the white horse. He says, You're, the judgment is sure because the judge has heard. And we'll look at what he says next week, and the judge is getting ready to walk through the door. And so he writes these believers, and he writes them this, this, kind, this, this, this harsh rebuke and rebuttal against those who, who are oppressing them to set up what we will look at next week. Because here's the reality. Just like those believers, we live in a world, and maybe even more so than them, we live in a, in a, in a, a world of strange extremes, church family. Because on one hand, we live in this world, if you really take the full counsel of God's Word seriously, if you really believe, thus saith the Lord, is the end of all controversy, then you are living in a world, and specifically our culture, that is growing more and more overtly hostile to anything in this Word that is not liked and accepted in culture. More and more, if you stand up for God's design, for human beings, for marriage, for family. If you stand up for what God calls right and stand against what God calls wrong, you are now living in a culture where you will face consequences. Right now, maybe just on the societal level, but we even see in other places and other aspects, even on the legal level. And one reaction to that is to want to buck up and fight against it. And that's what James is gonna address next week. How do we live in the midst of that suffering in a way that, that, that carries us through like Christ intends? But there is another danger because we also live in a society of great leisure, a society that promotes the pursuit of pleasure. When's the last time that you watched a commercial? Here's that new truck you deserve to drive. Here's the new iPhone that nothing's really changed whatsoever. We just added a new color in it, but you need to rush out and get it. We live in a culture that feeds and calls out to the appetite of what can I have, what can I consume, how can I can get. And here's the reality, church family, none of us are exempt from envying and seeking and craving the pleasures this society can offer us. So come back full circle here. The point of the passage is to say that those who have lived in this way, those who are walking, uh, those who are wealthy and walking in this, this fourfolded wickedness, their judgment is sure. That's the point. But remember what I said, who is he writing to? Is he writing, is, is he writing, is, is the warning addressed? Some would say the warning is addressed to those who don't know Jesus because there's no term for brother or, or, or no term for, for church family there. It's possible. Some would come back and, and rebuttal and say, well, it could be that there's some who, he's writing to some who are Christians, but their actions are such that it's as if they're not even in the family. It's possible. Here's the point. It doesn't actually matter whether or not in the warning he's addressing believers or not believers because the application of the warning to our lives is the same. 
The application to our lives is the same. A major reason, if, if next week we're gonna see James say, you need to know their judgment is sure so that you can endure with patience, so that you can suffer well, so that you can hold out for hope, so that you can, if that's where James is next week, what James is saying this week is you need to know their judgment is sure so that you don't fall into the trap of envying and seeking what you see those who society considers wealthfully and successful so that you see what they have so that you don't live a life where you go after it at all cost. Because here's the reality, church family. There is a temptation to envy that is so subtle and ever-present in our life. If we're honest, it is easy to crave stuff, comfort, experiences, It's easy to crave and long and envy the successes and even the power and influence we see others possess. In fact, many times it's those of us who would describe ourselves as not having those things who are most enraptured by the pursuit of gaining those things. There is a subtle and dangerous envy that we can fall into. This is what, this is what Paul writes In 1 Timothy 6, when he writes to Timothy and he says, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we must be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish, harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness. And it goes on down a list. There is a subtleness where all of a sudden and we wake up and we go, oh, I've, yeah, I've got to have that. Oh, I need that. Oh, I, I got I to gotta, I gotta check that box off or my life's not really satisfied if I, if I don't have this. And, and the reality that envy is subtle it leads us to the next part, which is we are easily blind by the wealth we actually possess. Now, let me be real clear here. By, let, me just, let me just give you the stats. Did you know in t- 2021, the median household income in the United States of America was just over $70,000? Did you know in the same year, the median income, and by the way, median means there's just as many people who have more than that as there are who have less than that, if you're not a math person like me. The median income the same year for the world was $2,800. The median household income is 25 times higher than the rest of the world. Not only that, but the stats say that if you are an individual living in America and you, you earn $60,000 a year, which we would classify, that's technically under the median. We would classify that as thoroughly middle class. That if you make $60,000 a year as an individual, you actually qualify as being in the top 1% of wealth in the world. You see, for many of us who fall in that 
middle class category. We live in a culture, by our culture standards, we go, I'm not that wealthy. By the global standards, we are on the top. And if we don't realize that, there can be a blindness to how we think and we move and we live and breathe in this world, whether it's with tangible wealth like money or whether it's with other aspects. Let me give you an example. How many times have I heard a Christian conference on marriage? We're going to tell you how to have a great marriage, all you married people. And we're going to go down, we're going to give you a list of advice for what you got to do to have a great marriage. And what you got to do to have a great marriage is you got to make sure at least twice a month you have a date night. If you don't have a date night, you will really struggle to have intimacy in your marriage. Now listen, that's not a bad idea. It certainly can help if you use that date right for you to connect with your spouse. But does that mean that the rest of the world who doesn't have the ability to ever take their spouse on a date can't have a good marriage? Does that mean 150 years ago in our own country when you had a family of of eight living on a farm 10 miles away from anywhere else and they didn't have the money because they worked the fields that they couldn't go on a date, that they can't have a good marriage? That's ridiculous. There's nothing in the Bible that says you got to go on two dates a month to have a good marriage. No different than, oh, you know, you, you gotta, if you want to really have a good connected family, you got you to make sure to take those family vacations. Oh, so we're nickel and diming and we're saving for those vacations. Listen, I'm not knocking a vacation. And the Bible does, doesn't anywhere say you can't go on a vacation. But nowhere does the Bible say that your kids are going to not have a close and great childhood if you don't take them on a vacation. Those are thoughts that the overwhelming majority of the people in the world will never be able to do and the overwhelming majority of people in history could never do, yet somehow we've we've taken all of this and we've gone and we've made and we've said, if we don't have this, if we don't do this, then, then life is a failure, marriage is gonna fall apart, families are gonna go away. Because perhaps we are blind to the fact that most of us in this room, and I'm not saying that there's not some in this room who aren't struggling financially. Don't mistake that or struggling with some other aspect. But for many of us, we are far more wealthy than we even realize from a world's standards. And a passage like this forces us to go, wow, are there things I've been envying? Wow, are there ways I've been blind? But here's the other reason he puts the passage in here, because it is the character and heart of God. Now stay with me here as we come into the end. God takes the stewardship of his creation serious. I love Psalm 50. He talks, he talks in Psalm 50, God speaking, and he says, hey, you know what? If I were hungry, I would never ask one of you because all the animals belong to me. Your offerings, you're not, you're not giving me something. You're just acknowledging it's already mine. God takes the stewardship of his creation with the utmost of seriousness. Whatever things we have, whatever wealth, talent, time, they don't belong to us. They are not our rights to do with as we want for what we want for our pleasure. They are gifts from him to be stewarded in following him. God takes stewardship seriously. God takes generosity seriously because he is love. And the very definition of God's agape love is the giving of himself for the good of another. This is why ultimately when you see and look at there, they, they've, you, you've, you've stored up treasure in the last days, you've, you've spent your time running around, hoarding is wrong. Hoarding is wrong in the face of a world that's in need. God is not a hoarder of his riches, by the way. 
He has lavished his grace. He abounds in mercy. He gives freely and lavishly. He's marked by abounding and cheerful generosity and he expects us church family to do the same. So when all of a sudden we look in at, at our wealth, do our budgets, how we steward our actual finances, do they reflect the generosity and stewardship of God? Scripture affirms, save prudently, but you can also oversave. I couldn't find the exact statistic, but if I remember right, John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, two of the richest men in history, got to a point where there was no possible way they could actually give away all their money before they died. How much is too much? Saving prudently, yes. But then are we faithful to give generously as we see and hear of needs of others? Are we faithful to give generously? Maybe it's helping someone in a grocery store. Are we faithful to, to give generously? Here's the reality, yes. I will own what is the danger. Have churches and pastors abused preaching on money? Absolutely. Are there churches who have stewarded their finances horribly? Yes, absolutely. If you are a member of a local church, does God expect you to give faithfully to the church? Yes. And here we try to be as transparent as possible. We have a finance team and we are trying to make sure when you flip this, not just to an individual question, but to a church budget question, does our budget reflect a sense of hoarding or does it reflect an attempt to actually engage in ministry and to take what God has given us and to put it for use for his kingdom purposes in this community? Do we give, do we see others' needs? When you think about things that you have, oh man, I've got 30 t-shirts. Do I really need 30 t-shirts? And by the way, if you serve in youth ministry, you have 30 t-shirts. <laughs> if you serve in college ministry, you have double that. Okay, these t-shirts, what do I do with them? When it comes time to, and you've got something, is your first instinct to, well, how can I make a buck off of this? Now listen, don't, don't take it to the extreme. I'm not saying you can't ever resell something. But so many times we go, oh, I've got this. Let me go sell this. Well, maybe you've got this so you can just straight up give it to someone. When, my, when I was little, my father was in a car wreck. He was working at a church that paid uh, shockingly little truly not enough to have a wife and a child on, even though he was considered a, a full role. The church paid very little. Uh, car was totaled in an accident. And he told me to this day, he still doesn't know who to this day. But somebody took a car, a working great, good car, gave it to the church and said, give it to Mike because they don't have a car. Do we think to give? Are we marked or are we marked by hoarding or are we marked by generosity with, with our certainly finances, but with our resources, with our time, with our talents, all of those. Remember, holistic of what wealth is. Are we faithful to give? And by the way, church family, let me just say this. I have been blown away in the year and a half we've been here. You are, we are a generous church. We are a faithful church Giving, giving to God's purposes, giving to things beyond. So do not miss here today. Today is not a rebuke of something we're not doing. Thank you for your faithfulness. At the same time, let us not live on yesterday's faithfulness and grow prideful and then neglect tomorrow's faithfulness. And today's 
It can be both a word of encouragement and a word of challenge. Listen, God takes generosity seriously because he's generous. God takes fair wages seriously because he is just. Listen to this out of Leviticus. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Deuteronomy says you shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin. Listen, God takes serious. If you are a maybe an HR person or you're in management or you own a business, God takes serious that we pay people fairly for the work that they do. God takes it incredibly serious. In fact, if you go back and look at some of the reasons Israel comes under the judgment of God in the Old Testament, it is for defrauding workers. Now, we don't like to talk about that all the time. It can get hijacked by this or that, but but here's the reality. Are we being faithful? Listen, not all jobs can be a career, but we also have to be faithful that we don't try to nickel and dime and get everybody for the lowest common denominator so that we can then line our own pockets. And man, this isn't just a problem in the business world. I've seen this in the church world. I know of churches, big prominent names, you would all know, who pay their interns next to nothing, who say you're gonna work for us for 20 hours and they pay them less than minimum wage and they work them 50 hours. That is wrong. Do we try to cheat Caesars, what is rightfully his, and taxes? Do we borrow things and forget to give them back? Do we, do we frivolously buy from places that, that wrong? Here's the deal. God takes, because God is a just God, God takes the defrauding of workers and God takes the misuse of whatever influence comes with your status. God takes the misuse of that seriously. So should we. It's interesting, in, in Isaiah 58, the people of God are crying out, for revival, they're, they're fasting, they're offering sacrifices, and God says, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you don't get it. I'm not looking for you to make yourself look all humble and pray the right things. When you finally repent of how poorly you're treating each other, of how you're defrauding each other, about, when you finally repent of that, then I'll hear and I will bring revival. That's why we gotta be careful not to just jump over passages like this. Now listen, not only does God take generosity seriously, not only does God take proper wages and fair treatment seriously, God takes pleasure seriously because he is good. One of the dangers that it says these people, they live for whatever indulges them. They live for whatever it is they want, whatever they feel. And this is in the face of Jesus who calls us as believers not to store up treasure in the last days on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven. Not to become consumed with the seeking of what we will eat, what we will wear, and and where we will live like those who don't know him do. But instead, rather than worrying and endlessly seeking, seeking those things, we are to seek first what? His kingdom, his rule, his reign. We are to seek his righteousness, his ways. Matthew chapter six And when he gives those things to us, church family, he's not giving us those things to be a buzzkill. If you go back and you read Matthew chapter six, he's giving those things because that is where actual true and real pleasure is found when you are in a right relationship with him. The pleasure is found in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's a pleasure no thing can buy. It's a pleasure no comfort can offer. It's a real tangible pleasure that will echo into eternity 
So we have to ask ourselves, where are we guilty of living for our own want and pleasure and personal indulgence? In our pursuit of money and things, do we always take any and every promotion regardless of the consequences for the rest of God's will in our life? Do we automatically assume that any promotion and the raise it would bring, well, that's got to be of God because God wants me to be rich, even if it means all of a sudden I fail to be the, the mother or the father God's called me to be? Are we always buying whatever is new? We got to get that new house. We got to get that bigger car. We got to get it, not because the old house is, is too small, not because the car is worn out, but just because, hey, we can and we got to do this. How much has that spirit of consumerism driven us? And again, I'll just say, church family, I am not, I'm not in any way implying or pointing a specific finger to any person in this room. But the reality is every one of us lives in a world, in a culture that is saturated by consuming. And not one of us is immune to falling into that trap. How do we do it with leisure and experiences? Spend endless money on our hobbies or, or take our kids. It's not good enough for our, for our kid to get to play baseball. We got to make sure that our kid plays baseball on, on three different teams. And it's not good enough for them to just, to just have. We got to make sure that their, their uniforms are of the same quality as the pros, e even if it costs us $800 per team to do it, per player. Oh no, I mean, this is big with my generation. Let me, let me not work, let me not, let me just hoard up a bunch of money and I'm just gonna go spend my life traveling and I'm gonna Instagram about it all and maybe I can get some extra money that way. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying you can't travel, I'm not saying you can't save to travel. But where have we allowed leisure and experience to become so great we're driven by it rather than the kingdom? Where is our pursuit of success and achievement in the same way? And I wanna say this, if you're and this goes for everybody, but I do wanna say a specific word here too. If you're a student, young person, here's the reality of the world you live in, students. You live in a world where you are told in order to be successful, you've gotta to go to a certain kind of college and get a certain kind of degree. But to get into that college, you've gotta have a certain kind of resume built up that leaves you without a shred of time to know and seek the Lord, to be faithful and, and engaged in your church. And, and all of a sudden, what's also tossed there is if, if you will sell out for this resume, if you will build this resume, there will be satisfaction and pleasure in all of this. And I want you to hear me, student, parents of students, grandparents of students, I, there's no way am I diminishing achievement. Do what you're supposed to do before the Lord in all aspects of your life, school, home, work, extracurriculars, but hear me clearly. There is a pursuit of success. This world has crammed down your throat that promises pleasure and it will not bring the pleasure it promises. Instead, it will rob you of the joy of knowing and following intimately with Jesus from a young age and allowing his purpose, his plan, his will to drive why you work hard, to drive what, where you go to school, to drive what you go into, to, to allow his sovereign hand to move and shape and mold your life for his glory and his kingdom. Church family, here's the reality. There is coming a day where we will give account. We live in a world that is hard and tempting. We live in a world where none of us are immune from the dangers and the warning of this passage. And as we'll see next week, we are going to give account 
But what God really desires when we give an account is not for that to be a terrifying thing, but for it to be a joyful thing because God delights to reward and see good and faithful servants who take what talents he's given them whatever that looks like in stuff and finances and literal talent and ability and time who take all of God's resources that he gives them and stewards them and says, Lord, I'm gonna seek your kingdom and your will and your way, your righteousness, and I want to honor you with these. Which is just simply this, and maybe you've seen this. I don't know where that intersects into every individual life in this room because I'm not God. God does not say you can't spend money on recreation. He doesn't say you can't enjoy things and with the gifts he's given, you can't have pleasure. He doesn't say you can't, don't go to any of these zany extremes. But at the same time, let us also with open eyes recognize where we might have gone to an extreme where we so envy and crave what this world tells us we should, where we are so blind to what we already have and we forget the amazing character of God. And let us allow the Holy Spirit to just probe our hearts and say, here's where this hits your life. Praise God, church family, we've been generous and faithful. Oh, may we evermore be found to be so in his sight that when we see him, we would truly hear both as individuals and a congregation, well done. Because there is more he has called us to do. And he will give his resources for us to do it, whatever those resources may be, time, energy, talent, on down the line. May we be found faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, inherently this is a tough and challenging passage. Many times we ignore it out of fear because we've seen it abused. But at the same time, God, and we've seen it hijacked, but the reality is, Lord, even in my own life, there are things as I have studied through this passage this week that you are stirring, that you are convicting things that, that you know you and I are praying through. And Lord, all of it is for the joy of, of, of what you're doing in my life as a son, of conforming me into your image. And that's true for all of us who know you in this room. So Father, I pray just simply for brothers and sisters in this room that they, as, as a response of this and the days to come as a response to this passage, Holy Spirit, you'd make clear how it applies to their life and may they honor and follow you in it. And Lord, if there's any watching in online, if there's any in this room today that, that do not know the generosity of your salvation, they've never come to a personal saving faith in you, may today be the day they ask the questions they need. May today be the day they respond to you. Jesus, we look to you in this time of invitation, and it's in your name I pray. Amen.